Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's show marks the launch of our second season with a very special guest, Michael Hudson. Michael Hudson is a financial analyst and president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends. He is a distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and a professor at the School of Marxist Studies, Peking University in China. He's also a research fellow at the Levy Institute of Bard College, and he has served as an economic advisor to the U.S., Canadian, Mexican, and Latvian governments. He's also been a consultant to UNITAR, the Institute for Research on Public Policy, and the Canadian Science Council, among other organizations. He holds a BA from the University of Chicago and an MA and PhD in economics from New York University. Professor Hudson is the author of Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Bondage Destroy the Global Economy, and most recently, J is for Junk Economics, A Guide to Reality in an Age of Deception. His super-imperialism, the economic strategy of American empire, has just been translated into German after its appearance in Chinese, Japanese, and Spanish. He sits on the editorial board of Lapham's Quarterly and has written for the Journal of International Affairs, Commonweal, International Economy, Financial Times, and Harper's, and he's a regular contributor to Counterpunch. I welcome Michael Hudson to Savage Minds. Class analysis in the United States is rather subterfuge amidst all these other narratives of the American dream as it's framed, that being the right to own one's home. In the UK, that became part of the Trojan horse that Thatcher built to win her election. It was a very smart move. She won that election. She won her elections by the reforms in the right to buy scheme, as I'm sure you know. It was really clever and disastrous for human rights in the country. I've spent quite a bit of my life in the UK, and to see that in 1979, 49% of all residential housing was council housing. And when I wrote a piece on this for the Morning Star about eight, nine years ago, that rate was reduced to under 11%. Mm. So we're seeing the haves and have nots. And this is where your work really struck a chord for me. And let's kick into the show at this point. I have written over the years about rentier capitalism, a term that is increasingly used to describe economies dominated by rentier rents and rent generating assets. And you discuss this quite a bit in your work. More recently, your article from July, Finance Capitalism versus Industrial Capitalism, the Rentier Resurgence and Takeover. And in this article, you discuss how today the finance, insurance, and real estate sectors have regained control of government, creating a neo-rentier economy, as you put it, while you note, I'm quoting you, the aim of this post-industrial finance capitalism is the opposite of industrial capitalism as known to 19th century economists. It seeks wealth primarily through the extraction of economic rent, not industrial capital formation, end quote. I was wondering if we might begin our talk by your branching out from this piece you wrote in July, and if you could explain for our listeners why discerning rentier capitalism is essential for understanding the global push to privatize and financialize those sectors 
that formerly existed in the public domain, such as, and we see this everywhere, including in the EU, transportation, healthcare, prisons, policing, education, the post office, etc. Well, most uh, textbooks uh, depict a sort of happy world that uh, almost seemed to exist in the 1950s. And this happy world is uh, when wealthy people get money, they build factories and uh, buy machinery and hire workers to produce more goods and services. But that's not uh, what credit's created for today. Uh, the textbooks depict uh, banks as uh, taking in people's deposits and lending them out to people who uh, build industrial uh, production. And uh, you'll have a, a picture of workers with uh, lunch boxes working in. Uh, but actually, banks only lend money against assets. Uh, and the main assets uh, do not make a profit by employing people to produce things. Uh, they simply are opportunities to extract rent, like real estate. 80% of bank loans are made uh, for real estate. And that means they're made against uh, primarily buildings that are and land that are already there. And the effect of more and more bank credit is to raise the price of real estate. And in the United States, in the last year, housing prices have gone up 20%. Uh, and typically in America, uh, the, if you go to a bank uh, and take out a loan, the government is going to guarantee the bank that you will pay the loan up to the point where it absorbs 43% of your income. So here's a big chunk of American income uh, going to pay simply for housing that, whose price increases, not because there's more housing or better housing, uh, but in fact, the housing is built worse and worse every year uh, by lowering the standards, but simply uh, uh, inflation. Uh, there are other forms of rent uh, uh, that people pay. For instance, uh, the 18% uh, of America's uh, GDP is healthcare, uh, much higher than uh, the percentage in any other country for much lower uh, quality of service. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's uh, sort of taken out of people's budgets. Uh, if you're a worker in the United States, uh, right away, uh, you get your paycheck, 15%, uh, a little more, maybe 16% now, is deducted for social security and, and uh, medical care for when you're old age. They also deduct up to maybe 30% uh, for income tax, federal, state, local income tax, before you have anything to spend. Uh, and then you have to spend pay for housing, uh, you have to pay for transportation, uh, you have to pay for your own medical uh, insurance uh, contributions, your own pension contributions. So there's very, uh, very little that is left over in people's budgets to buy goods and services. And, uh, not only have real wages in the United States gone down now for three decades, but the disposable income that people, the families get after they uh, meet their sort of monthly nut, uh, what they can spend on goods and services has shrunk even more. So while they're getting squeezed, all this money is paid to rentiers at the top. And because of the miracle of compound interest, uh, the, uh, the amount that the 1% of the economy has grows exponentially. Any rate of interest is a doubling time. And even though people know that the, uh, there's only 0.1% rate of interest, 
now for uh, the, for banks and for large wealthy firms, it's about uh, 3% if you want to buy uh, a mortgage. Uh, and so this, uh, the 0.1% is lent out to uh, large companies like Blackstone that are now buying up uh, almost all of the new, all of the housing that comes onto the market in the United States. So uh, in 2008, 69% uh, of homeowner of Americans owned their own homes. Now it's fallen by more than 10%, 10%. It's fallen to about 51%. All this, uh, this difference has been basically the financial sector funding uh, a transformation away from home ownership into landlordship, into absentee uh, ownership. And so again, uh, the, if you're a part of the 1%, the way that you make money is by buying stocks or bonds or corporate takeovers or, <coughs> excuse me, or buying real estate and not building factories. Uh, <coughs> and that's why the factories and the industry have been shifting outside of the United States over to uh, uh, China and, uh, and other countries. So uh, what we're having is a kind of, uh, I won't say it's post-industrial capitalism because People thought that the what was going to follow industrial capitalism was going to be socialism. They thought that there would be more and more government uh, uh, spending on providing basic needs uh, that people had. Uh, and instead of uh, socialism and a more uh, e egalitarian distribution of wealth and income, you've had a polarization of wealth and income. You've had the wealthy people making money financially and by real estate and by rent seeking and by creating monopolies, uh, but not by building factories, not by producing goods and services. And uh, that is why the economy is polarizing and so many uh, people are uh, uh, unhappy with their conditions now. They're going further and further into debt and their uh, student debt, uh, instead of stu uh, education here being a public uh, utility that's provided uh, freely, it's, it's become privatized at NYU. It's now uh, $50,000 or $60,000 a year. Uh, there's no way in which uh, the United States can uh, compete industrially with other countries when they've uh, loaded down new entrants into the labor force with huge housing costs, student debt, uh, huge uh, taxes that have been shifted off the 1%. Onto the 99%. So the United uh, Finance capitalism basically is self-terminating. It leads to uh, a polarized economy. It leads to austerity, and it leaves countries looking like Greece looked after 2015, uh, after the uh, it, its debt crisis. It looks like Argentina uh, trying to struggle to pay its foreign debts, and uh, that seems to be the future in which uh, the U.S. and Europe are moving towards. I posted on my Facebook wall about this about maybe five weeks ago, that the rentier class, I'm not just including the likes of Blackstone, but the middle class that are multiple homeowners. I noted that during lockdown, I was reading through accounts on social media of people who were being threatened by landlords, landlords who actually had no mortgage to pay. And I had to wonder at that point, what is the input of the rentier class 
by the landowning class who are not necessarily part of the 1%. These are people who, as some of these people came on my wall and said, I worked hard to buy my second and third houses. And I thought, well, let me pull out my violins. One thing that really alerted me during lockdown was the lack of sympathy for renters. And I don't just mean in the US. In fact, I think the US had a kinder response to renting in some sectors, such as New York State, where there has been and still is a massive pushback against any form of relaxation of rent forgiveness since lockdown. In the EU, in Italy, in France, it's appalling the kind of treatment that renters received here. I spoke to people in Bologna who were doing a rent strike, but fearful of having their name mentioned. I ended up not being able to run the piece because of that. And there are so many people who don't have money to pay their rent in the EU, in the UK, and yet we're somehow focusing oftentimes on these metacritical analysis of the bigger corporations, the 1%. But where does the middle class fit into this, Michael? Because I do have to wonder if maybe we should be heading towards the model I hold in my mind and heart is St. Ives in Cornwall, which about eight years ago set a moratorium saying no second homes in this city. Now they didn't do it because of any allegiance to Marxism or socialism, they did it in part because of that and because of a left-leaning politics, but mostly because they didn't want to have a ghost town that when the summer was over, you had very few people living in town. What are the answers to the rentier class that is also composed of people who consider themselves hardworking people who just want someone else to pay for their house, as one person on Twitter put it? This is exactly the problem that is plaguing left-wing politics uh, from Europe to America in the last 50 years. Exactly. It's astounding because there's been a lot of debate on Twitter around last summer when one woman wrote, I just did the math. I'm almost 29 years old and I paid, and she listed the amount in rent. I have just bought my landlord a second house. <laughs> and people are adding it up that we are back to understanding. And I think in terms of the medieval period, remember in, in high school in the US when you study history and you learn about feudalism and the serfs coming in from afar afield, having to tend to the master's terrain. And I think, are we heading back to a kind of feudalism under a new name? Because What's dividing those who can afford rents and those who can't, it's not only your eligibility to receive a bank loan in this climate, which is quite toxic in London. I know many architects, lawyers, physicians who cannot get bank loans, ironically. The bar is being raised so high that more and more people in London are moving on to the canal system there. They're renting or buying narrow boats. The same is happening in other parts of the world where people are being barred out of home ownership for one reason or another. And at the same time, there's a, a class of people often who got loans in a period when it was quite easy in the 80s and early 90s. And they hold a certain control over who's paying. 43% of income of Americans goes on housing. And as you know, in New York City, that can be even higher. How can we arrive at a society where 
there's more equality between these haves and have nots because it seems that the middle class is playing a role in this. They're trying to come off as being the hardworking schmoes who've just earned their right to own their second or third homes. And then the others who will never have a foot on that ladder, especially given the crash. Well, I think you put your finger on it. The Most people think of economies being all about industry. But as you just pointed out, uh, for most people, the economy is real estate. And if you want to understand how modern economies work, you really should begin by looking at real estate, which is symbiotic with, with banking. Because as you point out, uh, in, uh, a house is worth whatever uh, a bank will lend and, uh, in order to buy a house, uh, unless you have an enormous amount of savings, which hardly anyone has, uh, you'll borrow from a bank, uh, buy the house. And uh, the idea is to use the rent to uh, pay the interest uh, to the bank. And then you end up hopingly, hoping with a capital gain, uh, which is really a land price gain. Uh, you, you borrow from the bank, hoping that the Federal Reserve and the Central Bank or the Bank of England is going to inflate the economy uh, and inflate asset prices. And uh, bank credit is going to push uh, prices further and further up uh, as the rich get richer. They recycle the money into banks and banks lend it to real estate. So uh, the more the economies polarized between the 1% and the 99%, the more uh, expensive houses get, the more uh, absentee landlords are able to buy the houses and outbid the home buyers, who, as you point out, can't get loans because they're already loaned up. If they can't get loans in England to buy a house, it's because they already owe so much money for other things. Uh, in America, it would be because they own student debt or because they own other bank loans uh, uh, and uh, they're, they're all loaned up. So the key is uh, people are being squeezed more than anywhere else uh, on housing. Uh, in America, it's rent care too. And on, on uh, uh, related sort of monopoly goods that yield rent, now, the problem is, why isn't this at the center of politics? Uh, is it because, I've, and it's ironic that uh, although most people in every country, Europe and America, are still uh, uh, homeowners uh, or uh, still, they only own their own home, they would like to be rentiers in miniature. They would like to live like the billionaires live off, uh, uh, off the rents. They would like to be able to have enough money without working to get a free lunch and the economy is about getting a free lunch. Uh, and so somehow they, uh, they don't vote for what's good for the wage earners. They vote for, well, if I were to uh, get richer, then I would want to own a house and I would want to get rent. So I'm going to vote in favor of the landlord class. I'm going to vote in favor of banks uh, lending money to increase housing prices because I'd like to borrow money from a bank to get on this uh, treadmill that's going to uh, be an automatic free lunch. And I, I not only get rent, but I'll get the rising price of the house as uh, uh, prices continue to rise. So somehow the idea of class interest, they don't think of themselves as wage earners. They think of themselves as somehow uh, uh, would-be rentiers in miniature. Uh, without realizing that you can't do it in miniature. You, there, you really have to have an enormous amount of money to be a successful uh, rentier. So no class consciousness means that uh, the, uh, the large real estate owners, uh, the big uh, corporations like Blackstone that own huge amounts can sort of trot out a 
strapped uh, homeowner and individual, and they will sort of hide behind it and say, look at this, this uh, uh, poor family. They use their money to buy uh, a, 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 a house to sort of rise in the world. And now the, uh, the tenants have COVID and they can't pay the rent. Let's uh, bail out these, uh, uh, these landlords. So even though they're not getting rent, we have to uh, keep them. Uh, and think of them as little people, but they're not little people. They're uh, trillion dollar money managers. They're, they're huge companies that are taking over and people somehow personify uh, the billionaires and the uh, trillion dollar uh, 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 real estate management companies <coughs> as being a, a small people just like themselves. <coughs> There's a confusion about uh, economic identity. Well, certainly in the United States, we are known to have what's called the American dream. And it's, it's quite interesting when you start to analyze what that dream has morphed into from the 1960s to the present, and I even think through popular culture. Remember Alexis in Dynasty? This was the go-to model for success. So we've got this idea that the super rich are Dallas and Dynasty in the 80s, but 20 years after that, we were facing economic downfalls. We had American graduates having to go to graduate school because they couldn't get a job as anything but a barista. And the model of getting scholarships or fellowships, any kind of bursary to do the master's and PhD, when I was doing my graduate work, I was lucky enough to have this, but that was quickly disappearing. A lot of my colleagues didn't have it. And I imagine when you went to school, most of your colleagues had it. And today, and in recent years, when I was teaching in academia, most of my students doing advanced degrees had zero funding. So we've got on the one hand, the student debt hamster wheel rolling. We have what is to me, one of the biggest human rights issues of the domestic sphere in countries like the US or Great Britain, and frankly, everywhere is the ability to live without having to be exploited for the payment of rent. And then we have this class of people, whether they're Blackstone and huge corporations making billions or the middle class saying, but I'm just living out the American dream. How do we square the American dream in an era where class consciousness is more invisible than ever has it been? I think the only way you can do uh, explain that is to show how different life was back in the 1960s, 1950s, uh, uh, when I went to school uh, uh, and to college. Uh, it, NYU cost uh, $500 a semester uh, instead of $50,000. Uh, the price of, N of college has gone up 100 times since uh, uh, I went to college, 100 times. I rented a, a house in... Uh, uh, a block from NYU at $35 a month on Sullivan Street. And now that same uh, small apartment uh, would go for a hundred times that much, $3,500 a month, which is uh, a little below the uh, average rent uh, in Manhattan these days. So uh, you, you've had these uh, enormous increases in uh, the cost of uh, getting an education, the cost of rent, and uh, in a 
a society where housing was a public utility and education is a public utility, education would be provided freely. And if, they got, uh, if the economy wanted to keep down housing prices, as they do in China, for instance, uh, then uh, you would be able to work at the kind of wages that Americans are paid today uh, and uh, be able to save. The ideal of China or countries that want to compete industrially is to lower the cost of living so that uh, you don't have to pay uh, very high uh, wages to cover uh, the inflated cost of housing, the cost of education. <clears throat> if you privatize education in America, and if you increase the housing prices, then either you're going to have to pay labor much higher rates that will price it out of world markets, at least for industrial goods, or you'll have to squeeze budgets. So yes, people can pay for housing and education, but they're not going to be uh, by the goods and services they produce. Uh, and so, and that's one of the reasons why America is not producing industrial uh, manufacturers. It's importing it all abroad. So uh, the result of this finance capitalism that we have, the result of the rent squeeze uh, that you depict, and the result of voters not realizing that this is uh, economic suicide for them, is that the economy is shrinking and uh, leaving people basically out in the street. And of course, all of this is exacerbated by the COVID crisis right now, uh, uh, where uh, right now you have, especially in New York City, many uh, people are laid off as in Europe, they're not getting an income. Well, if, if your uh, uh, job has been closed down as a result of COVID, in Germany, for instance, you're still given something like 80% of your normal salary because they realize that they have to keep you solvent and, and living. Uh, in the United States, there's been a moratorium on rent. They realize that, well, if you've lost your job, you can't pay the rent. There's a moratorium on evictions. There's a moratorium on bank foreclosures on uh, landlords that can't pay their mortgage to the bank because their tenants are not paying rent. All of that is going to expire in uh, February, that's just in a few months. So they're saying, okay, in New York City, 50,000 uh, tenants uh, are going to be thrown out onto the street. Uh, thousands of homes are going to be foreclosed on. Uh, you're, uh, over the country, millions of Americans are going to be subject now to be uh, evicted. And uh, you can see all of the Wall Street companies are raising uh, private capital funds to say, we're going to be waiting for all this housing to come onto the market. We're gonna be waiting for all of these uh, 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 rent evictions uh, to take place. We're going to swoop in and uh, uh, pick it up. This is going to be the big grab bag that is going to shape the whole coming uh, generation. And uh, due to America, really what Margaret Thatcher did to England uh, when she got rid of, uh, the, uh, shifted from the housing, uh, the uh, council housing that you mentioned, uh, uh, was about half the population down to about one-tenth of the population today. This is what I wonder is not being circulated within the media more frequently. We know that major media is not, <laughs> they like to call themselves left to center, but they're neoliberal, which I don't look at anything in the liberal sphere, the neoliberal sphere as left. I look at it as a sort of strain of conservatism, frankly. But when you were speaking about paying 
$35 a month for an apartment on Sullivan Street. Get me a time machine. What year was that, Michael? That was 1962. 1962. And roughly the minimum wage in new york was just over one dollar an hour if i'm not mistaken i don't remember i i was uh, i was making i think my first job on wall street was fifty two hundred dollars a year a hundred dollars a week so yes i looked it up because i was curious when you said a hundred times certainly we see that if the tuition at new york when at new york university when i left was fifty thousand a year you were paying 500 a semester yes uh this is incredible inflation and i took out a student loan from the from the state uh because i wanted to buy economic books i i was uh, uh studying the history of economic thought and so i i borrowed you know i was able to take out a loan that i replayed repaid in three years as i sort of moved up the ladder and i was uh uh, got better paying jobs. But that was the golden age, the 1960s, uh, because in that generation, there, uh, because of the baby boom that uh, just coming online, uh, there were jobs for everybody. There was a labor shortage uh, and uh, everybody was trying to hire, hire anyone could get a job. I got to New York and I had $15 in my pocket in 1960. Uh, uh, I'd shared a ride with someone, didn't know what to do. Uh, we stayed in a sort of flea bag a hotel on uh, Bleecker Street that was torn down by the time you got there. Uh, but uh, I, I I took a walk around and uh, who should I run into at uh, Gertie's Folk City, but a, a friend of mine had stayed at my house in Chicago once. And he let me stay at his apartment for a few weeks till I could uh, look around, uh, uh, find a place to live and got the place for $35 a month. When there was that debate on Twitter, there were many debates actually about renting on Twitter. And there were a few landlords who took to Twitter angry that they learned that their renters had received subsidies in various countries to pay their rent. And instead of paying their rent, the people used this to up and buy a down payment on a home. And they got very upset. And there was a bit of schadenfreude there with people saying, well, it's exactly what you've done. And I find this quite fascinating because I've always said that the age of COVID has made a huge X-ray of our society, economically speaking. And it's also telling to me that in countries that I would assume to be more socialist leaning, if not socialist, uh, absolutely, in the EU, we saw very few movements against renting. Very few people or groups were calling for a moratorium on rent. It's ironic, but it was in the U.S. where we saw more moratoria happen. What is happening where, and this reaches to larger issues even outside of your specialty of economics and finance, but why on earth has it come to be that the left is looking a lot more like the right? And don't shoot me, but I've been watching some of Tucker Carlson over the past year, someone who... I could not stand after 9-11, and he has had more concern and more investigations of the poor and the working class than MSNBC or Rachel Maddow in the biggest of hizzy fits. What is going on politically that the valences of economic concern are shifting, and radically so? Well, the political uh, situation in America is very different from every other country. Uh, it, it, 
in the Democratic Party, in order to uh, run for a position, uh, you have to spend most of your time raising money. And the, pre, uh, the uh, party will support whatever candidates can raise uh, the most money. Uh, and you, uh, whoever raises the largest amount of money gets to be head of a, a congressional committee dealing with uh, uh, whatever it is their uh, campaign donors give. So basically, uh, the uh, nomination of candidates in the United States, certainly in the Democratic Party, uh, is based on how much money you can raise to finance your election campaign because you're supposed to turn half of what you raise over uh, to the uh, party uh, apparatus. Well, if you have to uh, run for an office, and uh, someone explained to me in, in the 60s, uh, uh, if I wanted to go into politics, I had to find someone to back uh, my campaign. And I, I they said, well, you have to go to, to the oil industry or the tobacco industry, and you go to these people and say, well, you back my campaign. And they say, well, sure, what's your position going to be on, on smoking, on uh, oil and the, uh, uh, the tax position on oil? Go to the real estate interest because all uh, uh, local politics are basically real estate promotion projects uh, run by the local landlords. And you go to the real estate people and you say, okay, I'm going to make sure that we have uh, public improvements that'll make your land uh, more valuable, but you won't have to pay taxes on them. So if you have uh, people uh, running for office uh, proportional to the money they can make by the special interests, that means that all the politicians here are representing the special interests uh, that pay them. And their job as politicians is to deliver a constituency uh, to their campaign contributors. And so the campaign contributors are going to say, well, here's somebody who could make it appear as if they're supporting their particular constituency. And so they, they uh, ever since the 60s, uh, certainly in America, the parties divided Americans into uh, Irish Americans, Italian Americans, Black Americans, Hispanic Americans. Uh, they, they will have all sorts of identity politics uh, that they will run politicians on, but there's one identity that they don't have, and that's the identity of being a wage earner. That's the common identity that all these uh, hyphenated Americans have in common. They all have to work for a living and get wages. They're all subject to, uh, they have to get a housing. They have to get uh, 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 more and more uh, bank credit if they want to buy a housing so that all of the added income they get is paid to the banks uh, as mortgage interest uh, to get a home that used to be much less expensive uh, for them. So basically all of the increase in national income get, ends up being paid to the campaign contributors, the real estate contributors, the oil industry, the tobacco industry, the pharmaceuticals industry uh, that back the politicians. And uh, essentially you have politics for sale in the United States. So we're really not in a democracy anymore. We're in an oligarchy. And uh, uh, that people don't realize that uh, uh, without changing this, uh, this consciousness, you're not going to have uh, anything like a left-wing party. And so you have most Americans uh, wanting to uh, be friendly with other Americans. You know, why can't everybody just uh, uh, compromise and be in the center? Well, there's no such thing as a centrist uh, because you have an economy that's polarizing. You have the 1% getting richer and richer and richer by getting the 99% further and further in debt so the 99% are getting poorer and poorer after paying their debts. 
And uh, uh, to be in the center, to say, and to be, say, only changes should be marginal, that means a centrist is someone who lets this continue, who said, we're not going to make a structural change. That's radical. We're not going to change the dynamic that is polarizing the economy between creditors at the top and uh, uh, debtors at the bottom, between landlords at the top and renters at the bottom, between monopolists at the top and the consumers who have to pay monopoly prices for uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, for uh, uh, cable TV, for almost everything they get. And uh, none of this is taught in the economics courses uh, because if you take an economics course, uh, they say there's no such thing as unearned income. Everybody earns whatever they can get. And uh, the, the American uh, uh, consciousness is shaped by this failure to distinguish between earned income and unearned income and a failure to see that the, that dynamic is impoverishing them. It's like uh, the proverbial frog that's being uh, boiled slowly in water. So uh, with this false consciousness people have, if only they can save enough and borrow from a bank, they can become a rentier in miniature. Uh, they're just uh, tricked into a false dream. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Well, I don't know if you saw the movie called Queen of Versailles, and it was about this very bizarre effort to construct a very ugly Las Vegas style type of Versailles by a couple that was economically failing. And it spoke to me a lot about the failings of the quote unquote American dream. And I don't mean the dream per se, I mean the aspiration to have the dream. Because that is, as you just pointed out, unearned income. That is the elephant in the room. And it almost seems to be the elephant, maybe to keep using that metaphor, that the, the blind Sufi tale. Everyone's feeling a different part of it, but no one is naming it. And I find this really shocking that we can't speak of unearned income and look at the differences as to which countries tax inheritance and which do not. This idea that one is entitled to wealth. Meanwhile, what a lot of U.S. institutions academically now formally being captured by the identity lobbies, and there are many lobbies out there, it's a gift to them. They don't have to work on the minimum wage. They don't have to work on public housing. They don't have to work on housing, hell. They can just worry about, do we have enough pronoun badges printed out? And I find this really daunting as someone who is firmly of the left and who has seen some kind of recognition of this problem, bizarrely, from the right. We seem to have a blind spot where we're more caught up in how people see us rather than the material reality upon which unearned and earned income is based. Why is it that today people are living far worse than their grandparents and parents especially? Well, I think we've been talking about that because they have to pay uh, uh, expenses that their parents and grandparents didn't have to pay. They have to pay much higher rent. Uh, everybody used to be able to afford to buy a, a house. That was the, the, the definition of middle class in America was to be a homeowner. And uh, uh, when I uh, 
was growing up in the 50s and 60s, everybody on the salary they were getting could afford to buy their house. And that's why uh, so many people bought the houses with a working class salary. As I told you, I was getting uh, $100 a week. Um, uh, and uh, the, 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 at least if you were white, you could do it. If you were black, you couldn't do it. Uh, the blacks were redlined, uh, but the, the white people could, could buy the houses. And that's why today the white uh, uh, population has so much more uh, uh, wealth than the black population because the white, uh, the families would leave the house to the children. The housing prices have gone up a hundred times. Uh, and because they've gone up a hundred times, this has endowed a whole white hereditary class of kids whose family owned their own homes and sent them to schools. But America was redlined, uh, Chicago was redlined, the blacks were redlined. Uh, in New York City, uh, the banks would not lend uh, money to black neighborhoods or to black borrowers. I was at Chase Manhattan and they made it very clear, they will not make a loan to a mortgage if there are black people living in, in my block. And they told me that on uh, when I was on 2nd Street and Avenue B. Uh, uh, I won't repeat the, uh, epithet, the racist epithet they use, but uh, what has caused the racial disparity today is what we've been talking about, the fact that whites could buy their own homes, blacks could not, and the reason I'm bringing this up is that if, well, we're working toward the society where white people uh, are now going to be reduced to the position that black people are in today of not having their own homes, of not being able to get blank cre uh, bank credit. The whole, con uh, uh, one friend of mine at the Hudson Institute, uh, uh, a black economist wanted to, we were thinking of co-writing a book, The Blackening of America, uh, to say that, uh, uh, well, the future of the whites uh, is to become blacks if you don't uh, uh, solve this situation. Uh, and I've been unable to convince many black leaders uh, about reparations, that the reparations, uh, very hard to give reparations for slavery, which was uh, to their grandparents, the reparations are due to the blacks today who do not have housing, uh, uh, their own homes, because of the redlining that they have been uh, experiencing right down to today. Uh, so you, you have this, uh, you do have a separation uh, in this country, but this is not the kind of uh, hyphenated politics that uh, the politicians talk about, uh, not even uh, the black politicians. Uh, the fact that uh, if you're going to hyphenate American, uh, how does this hyphenization affect the, uh, the real opportunities for real estate, for home ownership? for education uh, and all of these other things. I think maybe if people uh, uh, begin to think uh, is, is to how there's uh, a, a convergence and, uh, uh, it, uh, of what was diverging before, now you're having uh, the middle class pushed down into its real identity, which was a dependent wage earning class all, all along. Uh, you're going to have a change of consciousness, but uh, we're still not not to that. People don't realize uh, this difference. Um, and at the top of the pyramid, uh, at uh, New York University, for instance, where we both went to school, uh, I have professor friends there, and uh, uh, there was recently an argument about getting more uh, salaries for professors uh, because they're uh, hiring uh, adjunct professors at the very low prices instead of uh, appointing them full time. And uh, one professor turned uh, to uh, my friends and they must, th they're treating us like wage earners. 
And my friend said, yes, you are a wage earner. You're, you're dependent on the wage you get from uh, New York University. And he said, yeah, but I'm a professor. As if somehow being a professor doesn't mean that you're not a wage earner, you're not dependent on salary, you're not being exploited by uh, uh, your em employer uh, who's uh, in it to make money uh, at your expense. Well, absolutely. We've got the push from NYU in the 1990s by adjunct professors to get health insurance and to have a certain modicum of earnings that would allow them to pay rent in an extremely expensive city. I find it amazing how many of my students at the time had no idea how much I was being exploited at the time. I was at lunch after the graduation of two of my students. They invited me to lunch and they were having a discussion about how well we must be paid. And I, I laughed. I didn't go into the details of my salary, but later in later years, they came to understand from other sources how exploitation functioned within the university where they were paying almost quarter of a million to go to school and graduate school and so forth. So it's quite shocking that even though we have the internet and all the information is there, anyone can see precisely how much NYU or Columbia costs today or how much the cost of living is as opposed to 1961, for instance, that people are still not putting together that when you have housing, that is like income for most of us. If housing is affordable, the way one lives, the efficacy to live, the ease, the mental health, the physical health improves. And it's fascinating to me that during lockdown, people were told just to bite the bullet, stay inside. And how many publications, how much of media went out to discover the many people being locked down in extremely small hovels, multiple families living in three bedroom houses, even smaller. And I just kept thinking throughout these past 20 months or so that the media has become complicit in everything you've discussed. We've seen an extra tack added on where the media is another arm of industry and the 1%. They are able to sell lockdown stories, stars singing, Spaniards singing, accordionists from Neapolitan balconies, everyone's happy. But that was a lie. And that was a lie being sold conveniently. I regularly post stories from CNN where their recent yacht story, they love yachts. Their recent yacht story from about five or six days ago was how the super rich are saving the world's ecology. And it was a paid advertisement of a very expensive yacht that uses nuclear power. What you and I hope that all the rich people are running around with little mini nuclear reactors on the seas. And I keep thinking, what has happened that you mentioned campaign financing? Remember what happened to Hillary Clinton when she suggested campaign finance reform? That went over like a lead balloon. And then we've got CNN, Forbes, all these major publications that run sponsored news articles as news. It's all paid for. They legally have to say it is, but you have to find the fine print. And we're being sold the 1% as the class that's going to save the planet with this very bizarre looking yacht with a big ball on it. And another CNN article about yacht owners was about how it's hard for them to pay for maintenance or something. And we're pulling out our tiny violins. 
And I keep wondering, why is the media pushing on this? We, we can see where MSNBC and CNN and USA Today are heading in a lot of their coverage over class issues. They would much rather cover the Felicity Hoffman and all those other stars, children's cheating to get into a California university scandal, which is itself its own scandal, of course, that gets so covered, but you rarely see class issues in any of these publications, unless it refers to the favelas of Brazil or the shanty towns of Delhi. So we're, we're sold. Poverty isn't here, it's over there. And over here, mask mandates, lock up, shut your door, stay inside, do your part, clap for the carers. And class has been clearly cut out, even in the UK, where class consciousness has a much more deeply ingrained fermentation, let's say, within the culture. It's gone. Now the BBC, similarly, nightly videos at the initial part of lockdown with people clapping for the carers. Little was said about the salaries that some of these carers were getting, and I don't mean just junior doctors there, but the people who are cleaning the hallways. So our attention has been pushed by the media away from class, not just the politicians doing the dirty work or not just the nasty finance campaign funding that is well known in the US. What are some of the responses to this, Michael, that we might advance some solutions here? Because my worry as a, as a person living on this planet is enough is enough. Why can't we just try a new system? Is it that the fall of the Berlin Wall left a permanent divide in terms of what we can experiment with? Or is there something else at play? Well, recently, uh, Ukraine passed a law uh, about oligarchs, and they defined an oligarch as not only owning a big company, but also owning uh, one of the big media uh, outlets. And uh, the oligarchy in every country own the media. So, of course, CNN and uh, the main uh, New York Times and the Washington Post uh, are owned by uh, uh, the billionaire class representing uh, the real estate interests and the rentier interests. They're the, essentially the indoctrination uh, uh, agencies. And uh, so, of course, in the media, what you get is a combination of a fantasy world and schadenfreude. Uh, schadenfreude when something uh, uh, goes wrong with people you don't like, uh, like uh, the scandal. Uh, but apart from that, it's, uh, it's uh, promoting a fantasy about a kind of parallel universe about how a nice world would work if everybody earned the money that they had and the wealth they had by being productive and helping society. All of a sudden that's uh, reversed and said, well, uh, if they have made a lot of fortune, they must have made it by being productive and helping society. So uh, everybody deserves the celebrity, deserves the wealth they have. And uh, if you don't have wealth, you're undeserving and you haven't made a uh, productivity contribution, and all you need is to be uh, more uh, educated and managerial and, uh, uh, and intelligent, and you can do it. And it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence. As soon as you inherit uh, a lot of money, your uh, intelligence, your IQ drops uh, 10%. Uh, as soon as you just don't have to work for a living and just uh, clip coupons, your IQ is down another 30%. The stupidest people I've met in my life are 
millionaires who don't want to think about how they get their money. They just, they're just greedy. And uh, uh, I was told 50 years ago, you don't need to go to business school to learn how to do business. All you need is greed. So what are all these business schools for? All they're doing is saying greed is good and giving you a patter talk to say, well, yeah, sure, I'm greedy, but that's why I'm productive. And uh, somehow they conflate all of these ideas. So you have the media and the educational system uh, all sort of combined into a fantasy, uh, uh, a fantasy world that is to uh, displace your own consciousness about what's happening right around you. The idea of the media is that you don't look at your own position, you imagine other people's position in another world and see that you're somehow left out. So you could say that the working class in America are very much like uh, the teenage girls using Facebook, uh, who use it and they have a bad self-image uh, once they use Facebook and think everybody else is doing better. That's uh, the story in Congress uh, this week. Uh, well, you could say that the whole uh, wage earning class uh, once they actually see how awful the situation is, they, uh, uh, they think, well, gee, other people are getting rich. Other people have yachts. Why, why don't I have my own house? Why am I struggling? And they think that they're only struggling alone and that everybody else is somehow surviving when uh, other people are struggling just the way they are. That's what we call losing class consciousness. Yes, well, we're back to Crystal and Alexis wrestling in Dynasty's fountain. Everyone wants to be like them. Everyone wants the car. You know, I'll never forget when I lived in Mexico City, one of the th first things I learned when you jumped into one of those taxis that were Volkswagen Beetles is people would, Mexicans would call their driver Jaime. And I said to them, why are you guys calling the taxi drivers here Jaime? And they said, well, we get it from you. And I said, what do you mean you get it from us? We don't call our taxi drivers Jaime. And then I thought, and I paused, I thought, well, James, remember the Grey Poupon commercials? The it's We do, we have James is the driver in a lot of these films that we produced in the 1970s and 80s. And the idea became co-opted within Mexico as if everyone has a British driver named James. Now, what we have turned into from this serialized filmic version of ourselves to the present is dystopic. Again, you talked about the percentage of rent that people are paying in the US, the way in which people are living quite worse than their parents. And this is related to student debt bank debt, credit card debt. We've had scandals directly related to the housing market. We saw that when there were people to be bailed out, they had to be of the wealthy class and, and companies to be bailed out. There was no bailout for the poor, of course. And I was in London during the Occupy Wall Street. In London, it was Occupy the London Stock Exchange, right outside of, not even the London Stock Exchange, it was outside of St. Paul's Cathedral. And there was a tent city and people were fighting ideological warfare from within their tents. There wasn't much organizing on the ground. It was disassembled months later. But I wonder why Americans, even with what is called Obamacare, are still not pushing for further measures, why Hillary Clinton's push for, or suggestion merely, of finance, finance reform within the campaigning system, all of this has sort of been pushed aside. 
Are there actors who are able to advance these issues within our current political system in the United States? Or will it take people getting on the streets protesting to get housing lowered, to maybe have national rent controls, not just of the form that we have in New York, which before I got to New York in the late 80s, everyone was telling me how great rent control was. Now it's all but disappeared. What is the answer? Is it expropriation of houses? Is it the Cornwall style, no owning more than one house type of moratorium on home ownership? What are the solutions to this, Michael? There is no practical solution that I can suggest uh, because the uh, uh, you're not going to have uh, uh, universal medical care as long as you have the pharmaceuticals uh, uh, funding the campaigns of the leading politicians. As long as you have a political system that's funded by uh, campaign contributors, you're going to have the wealthiest classes uh, deciding who gets nominated and uh, who gets uh, promoted. So uh, I don't see any uh, line of reform given the uh, dysfunctional political system that the United States is in. If this were Europe, we could have a third party. Uh, and if we had an uh, actual third party, the, uh, the Democratic Party would sort of be like the social democratic parties in Europe. It would fall to about 8% of, uh, uh, of the electorate and the third party would completely uh, take over. But uh, in America, it's a two-party system, which is really one party uh, with uh, different constituencies uh, for each uh, wing of that uh, party. And uh, that one party, uh, the same campaign contributors funds both the Republicans and the Democrats. So it's possible that uh, you can think of America as a failed state, as a failed economy. Uh, I don't see any uh, means of practical uh, going forward, just as you're seeing in the Congress today, when they're uh, unwilling to pass an infrastructure act, there, uh, there's a paralysis of uh, change. I don't see any way in which a structural change can take place. And if you're having the dynamics that are polarizing, only a structural change can, uh, uh, can reverse uh, this trend. And nobody that I know, no politician that I know, uh, sees any way of the trends being reversed. The funny thing is that scandal, quote unquote, scandal over uh, Ocasio-Cortez's dress at the Met Gala was quite <laughs> performative to me. It's typical of what the media does. No, you know, tax the rich as she sits at a function that I believe cost 35000 to enter. And she socialized the entire night, even if she allegedly did not pay either for her dress nor for the entrance. And I'm thinking, isn't this part of the problem that we have so much of our sociocultural discourse wrapped up in politics in the same way that Clinton's suggestion at campaign finance reform disappeared quite quickly? Is there any hope of getting campaign finance reform passed in the States? No, the, uh, the, because if you had campaign finance reform, that's how the wealthy people control politics. If you didn't, if you didn't have uh, the wealthy, uh, wealthy people deciding who gets uh, nominated, you would have people get nominated by uh, who wanted to uh, do what uh, the public wants. Uh, Bernie Sanders says, look, most of America, all the, uh, pub, uh, the polls show that what democracy uh, if this were a democracy, we would have socialized medicine. We'd have public health care. 
uh, we would have free education. Uh, uh, we would have progressive taxation. And yet no party is representing what uh, the bulk of people have. So by definition, we're not a democracy. We're an oligarchy and the oligarchy controls. I mean, you could say that the media play the role today that the church and religion uh, played uh, in the past to uh, divert attention away from worldly uh, issues towards uh, otherworldly issues. Um, that's part of the problem. But uh, uh, the uh, not only the pharmaceutical industries are against public uh, 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 health care, but uh, the whole corporate sector, the employer sector, are uh, against socialized medicine because right now workers are dependent uh, for their health insurance on their employers. That means uh, uh, Alan Greenspan, the Federal Reserve Chairman, said this has caused uh, a traumatized worker uh, syndrome. The workers are afraid to quit. They're afraid to go on strike. They're afraid of getting fired because if they get fired, first of all, if they're a homeowner, they, they lose their home because they can't pay the mortgage. But most important, they lose their health care. And if they get sick, it wipes them out. And uh, uh, they go broke and they lose their home and all the assets. Uh, uh, making workers depend on the employer instead of on the government means you're, they're locked into their job. They have to work for a living for an employer and just in order to survive uh, in terms of of healthcare alone. So the idea of the system is to create a dependent wage earning class and uh, keeping uh, privatizing healthcare, privatizing education, and moving towards absentee landlordship uh, is the way to traumatize and uh, keep a uh, population on the road to serfdom.